Well, it is my pleasure to introduce my friend, uh, Reverend Harold Spooner, uh, as our guest preacher this morning. Harold is uh, no stranger to ECC. He's been here multiple times for Central Conference events and most recently even met with our Triple L Senior Ministries group uh, uh, regarding Crescendo Ministry, which is for Boomers and Beyond, as he coordinates that ministry for the Central Conference. Uh, Harold has been on the other end of many of our grant requests to Covenant Children's Ministries for the outreach ministries that we do here at ECC. So he knows us from that standpoint. Uh, I personally met Harold when I served on the Covenant Ministries of Benevolence Board when Harold was the president of Covenant Initiatives in Care, which is a large family of ministries ranging from treatment centers for troubled youth to residences for adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities. So when I first met Harold, it was at the time that the Covenant Church started the Department of Compassion, Mercy, and Justice, now called Love, Mercy, Do Justice as ministry priority. And a lot of the vision for that mission priority came out of Covenant Initiatives for Care. And, and frankly, Harold was behind a lot of that. So I gotta tell you, when I see Harold, as we were joking in the hallway, I feel like I gotta pull a chair up to a table because it must be time for a meeting because I think we're like meeting seven times a year, too many meetings. But I was blessed to be a part of it and I've learned a lot from Harold. Uh, prior to being part of the, the Covenant Church, Harold has done many ministries for young people, including the Stony Brook School, the Reformed Church of America, and Young Life. Harold and his wife Cheryl now have moved to Noblesville, Indiana, to be near their three adult children and four grandchildren. So Harold, Harold's going to come up in a little bit after this video, but uh, before he does, there's like one last thing. So Bob Hoy stood up here last week in front of all these witnesses and told me to introduce you as his twin brother. So... Since Bob's coming back next week, I just follow through. Harold, you do what you want with that, but we're glad you're here. See you in the morning, okay? Okay. You were very good today. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hey, you're gonna be great because daddy says so, right? Okay. Bye. Okay. All right. Bye. 
Good morning. Wasn't that a wonderful video on Father's Day? A young father and his son hanging out. And what I love about it is that you've got this love that's just kind of working with this thing. As the father looks into the son's eyes and the son looks into the father, there's this bond that's taking place that's just, you can feel the love. You just feel it. It's great to be here with you all this morning. As Kurt mentioned, um, I know many of you out here, old friends who we've journeyed together uh, and some really interesting things. And uh, uh, just the, the number of ways in which our lives continue to interconnect and do things together. And it's just wonderful to be here with you this morning. That clip you saw was taken from a film that's streaming uh, on, in, on Peacock right now. And the name of it is called Black Boys. And the premise is it's a documentary uh, of, um, made to show some of the challenges that what it means to uh, be black and to grow up and what challenges young men in, in particular face in this day and age. This weekend is Father's Day. But it's also Juneteenth. Now, you've probably been hearing a lot of that lately. Juneteenth. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Juneteenth represents uh, the day, uh, this June 19th in 1865, when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas to take control of the state and ensure that all enslaved people be freed. The troops' arrival came a full two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed. General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse two months earlier in Virginia, but slavery remained generally unaffected in Texas in particular until U.S. General Gordon Granger stood um, <clears throat> on Texas soil and read General Orders Number 3. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Up until that point, the war had been raging. And as we, as we all know from history, the Civil War was a brutal, brutal war. So many young lives were lost. So many families were devastated. Why? All because some folks said that other folks were less than and could be property. It took that moment for something different to happen. And so Juneteenth is now celebrated uh, throughout black communities. 
It's an interesting thing, Juneteenth, as folks are hearing about it for the first time. I didn't even know about it, and I grew up in East Harlem uh, until about 15 years ago. Says something and speaks to how we teach history and how we understand history. So it is in the context of Father's Day, Juneteenth, and all that is happening around us, being back together for the first time in months, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's been a tough year for a lot of reasons and for a lot of people. But here we are, and we're back together, and thank God. So it's in this context that we will take a look at this text. And as to Bob Hoy's context, uh, uh, comment about he and I being twins, Yeah, we are twins in the sense that we stayed in the legion of men who tried to stay young as long as they could playing basketball into their 60s. Yeah, rough. (laughs) And we paid for that. Uh, And neither one of us have a whole lot of hair on top. So, hence, yes, Bob is my twin brother from another mother. But I love Bob, and he's a wonderful man, and and he and I have, again, uh, one of those visionary kind of people who had a vision for a clinic in Detroit uh, to to serve people um, who were underserved or not served by the medical system. And Bob, along with some others, uh, now have this uh, clinic in Detroit that started off serving a handful of folks, but now they have at least five or six extensions throughout the city. So it's just been a wonderful ministry. So in this context, would you pray with me as we get ready to take a look at this very rich text? Lord, creator and sustainer of all that exists, Be with us this morning as we hear from your word. Help us to be open to whatever you may be saying to us through me, this sorely inadequate and broken vessel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, writing to the believers in Colossae, He's probably in prison, well, he is definitely in prison in Rome, and he's writing to this small, excuse me, Gentile church. He didn't found this church, but due to the time he spent in the region, region teaching and preaching, his influence was very strong. The house church was planted by a, a disciple of His, someone who had come to Jesus because of the word that he heard from Paul, Epaphras. And as Epaphras was pulling this church together, uh, one of the concerns among some others was many of the false teachings that were taking place. And Epaphras was aware of this, and so he wanted to get in touch with Paul, and he wanted Paul to speak directly to who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And so he 
Paul, in this particular text, comes back and he writes this, what we think is a actual, could be a hymn. Most scholars agree that it was put together not by Paul and others, that when house churches came together, they may have sung them or recited them or in some way did something around it, but we really don't know. We see it again, uh, a similar kind of uh, uh, hymn in Philippians 2, where the person of Jesus is expounded on and who and what those churches believed. They talked about the Son being the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself, pre-crucifixion, pre, excuse me, pre-crucifixion alludes to this in John 14. As Jesus is with his disciples and they know what's going to happen at this Last Supper, they're getting ready to, uh, disciples have no clue what's going on, as was often the case. And yet Jesus knows that the imminent reality of what he is about to face is coming. And he says to the, and, and the disciples in their hard time trying to get who Jesus was, even though they were with him 24-7 for three years, still trying to figure it out. And Jesus says to them, and, and they ask him, Lord, show us the Father. We want to see the Father. And Jesus comes back and says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Do you not know? Haven't you just been spending time with me? Haven't you listened to what I've said? If you see me, you've seen the Father. So what does this mean in terms of as we look at the image of Jesus and being the image of the invisible God? Image, or the word um, icon, uh, means exact, where we get our word icon. This one is spelled E-K-O-N. But as we look at this, we think in terms of how Jesus um, is, embodies the character of who God is. It's not necessarily the physical, but what has Jesus done? What has he done? What has he moved? How has he moved? How has he cre uh, treated people? How has he gone forward in terms of uh, his life? How has he understood what it means to be a follower of God? So as Jesus is the image of this invisible God that we couldn't see and that we can't see, Jesus continues to be that one who we can see and put our hands, we can actually touch and feel, and he empathizes with us, and he's with us throughout all that we do. Jesus is also, um, in this context, uh, creator. We get a sense that God and Jesus are together and that this relationship between God and Jesus is very different than our human relationships. 
when we think of human relationships, it's sometimes very hard to kind of figure out how we and our fathers get along. Uh, my father loved him, and he loved me. But there were times when we did this, <laughs> probably because we were so much alike. Was I his image? In many ways, and when I look in the mirror these days, Lord have mercy. Uh, you know, I see how much I've become like him or him. And, uh, you know, it's just this kind of thing that we kind of do. We're always wrestling with our relationships with our fathers and how, how does that work and how does that impact us? And we don't want to ever become our parents, right? That's what they tell us. Geico does this whole commercial, you know. I'm sure you've seen it, you know. Uh, This guy who's kind of this guru, uh, his job is to, you know, help folks to not be their parents after they bought a home. Yeah, how many pillows do you need on a couch? (laughs) How many signs do you need to tell you how to live your life during the course of the day, right? Don't be your parents. And this one I love because I can relate. Every time you get up or down, there's this sound that comes out. (laughs) Hear it? (laughs) You become your parents. But the relationship that Jesus has with the Father is very different than any of that. Jesus is not the created being. He is not similar to God. He is God. He is the visible sign of the invisible. As I said, the word translated in Greek is the word icon, and it expresses two ideas, likeness as in the image on a coin or the reflection in a mirror. If Paul meant that Jesus was merely similar to the Father, he would have used the ancient Greek word harmonia, which speaks merely of similar appearance. The stronger word used here proves that Paul knew, (coughs) excuse me, that Jesus is God, just as God is the Father, and it means that Jesus is the very stamp of the Father. I want us to rest with that for a minute. The stamp of the Father. Jesus became flesh. God becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. And he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this term firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was born. Remember, he's not a created being. The Christ is God. But the firstborn is a term used... Uh, again, by uh, even Hebrew scholars when they talk about God as being the firstborn of all creation. So it's not unusual that that is in there. And in no way does the title firstborn indicate that Jesus is less than God. In fact, the ancient rabbis called Yahweh himself firstborn of the world. The use of the word does not show that, as Arius argued, that Paul regarded Christ as creature like all creation, 
it is rather the comparative force of protos that is used. Bishop Lightfoot, a noted scholar, Greek scholar, on the use of the, both icon and protokos as the person of Christ was the divine response alike to philosophical questions of the Alexandrian Jew and to the patriotic hopes of the Palestinian. Jesus represented this, this, this hope for the future as well as what the present meant. We move on to the next verse, and then we see that God is not only, Jesus is not only present in creation, but he is creator as well. Now, I want us to kind of wrap our heads around this creation piece. I was watching a program the other night on the human body. There are billions of protons working in our brains. Not millions, billions. Each one of you is a universe in and of himself or herself. Wrap that around your brain for a minute. That you have all of this stuff going on inside of you. And that's just inside of you. There's more, there are more bugs in a one square mile rural area than there are human beings. Let's talk about the vastness of who God is. How do we understand who God is in the midst of that greatness and in, in the midst of that wonderfulness? It, it's just hard to get our heads around. But that's who Jesus is. That's who the Christ is, creator, sustainer, and person who, uh, and uh, uh, above all, and through all, who created all, and all is sustained by him. Part of what's going on here in this piece is that um, Paul, and in this piece, is talking and, and, and really talking about what was known as the Colossae heresy. That heresy said that there were others that were mediators between God and human beings and humankind. This particular passage ends all of that. It says, no, the creator is not, cannot have something other below him to mediate between humans. Christ is that mediator. Christ is God himself. Christ is above the angels, not equal with the angels. So again, we're, 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 we're moving to a point where God is showing his supremacy. And that actual word supremacy is used uh, later in the text. One of the things that uh, comes to mind very quickly as we look at this text is that there are um, a number of issues, um, I'm sorry, not issues, but ways by which um, God uh, has moved uh, through Christ. The fullness of God lives in Christ. The fullness of God is Christ. The fullness of God is 
expressed through Jesus. The Gnostics of the time uh, thought that uh, divine powers were everywhere and they were in various beings. But uh, this text says, no, that is not the case. Here's what's going on. So as we continue to read and we go on, we, we see that, um, um, that Christ is, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that Christ was before and Christ is after and he will be forever. He is the beginning, he is the supreme over all, who rise from the dead. He is the first in everything. For God in his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Richard Rohr describes it this way. There's this love that happens between the Trinitarian God. God pours himself into the Son. The Son pours himself into the the whole, uh, into the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit pours himself into, back into God. It's the cyclical love that continues to happen. And guess what? We are the beneficiaries of that love. Because of that cyclical relationship with God, Son, Holy Spirit, God is always at the ready to redeem his creation. When we think about the redemption of the creation and the work on the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross, it is about the redemption of the world. He gives his blood. He does his thing. And in him, all things are reconciled. Now, one thing that happens with us sometimes as human beings, we tend to think that we are the center of the universe. All of the stuff that happens around us, all of the things that we get involved in, all of the things that we spend so much time worrying about, we think that that's because we are the center of the world. What this passage continues to kind of show us is that Jesus is the center of all things. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. All things answer to him. And that Jesus is the one who, uh, who is indeed the, se- the center of the universe. The cyclical love that Jesus and the, f- the Son and the Father have and the Holy Spirit is shed on the cross and the blood that Jesus sheds reconciles. We should not regard the blood as uh, the blood of the cross as a superstitious thing, but it is real and it is actual. If that were so, then the Roman executioner splattered his blood would have been automatically saved. And the actual number of molecules of Jesus' literal blood would limit the number of people who could be saved. The blood of the cross speaks to us of the real physical death of Jesus in our place. 
on our behalf before God, that literal death in our place, <coughs> excuse me, and a literal judgment he bore on our behalf. God loves us, folks, as you all well know. As you continue to be a lighthouse church and you're engaged with people in different areas of the world and locally and here and there, you are that lighthouse. You are the representatives of Christ's blood. One thing I want us to do as we kind of come to um, and close is to remember that God, um, that we exist for God and that we are not the center. I have an image, if you guys would put that up. What do you think you see there? Anybody? This is interactive. <laughs> what do you see? You see earth. Under the ring of Saturn. The next picture. If that was enhanced, as you can see, look how small earth looks compared to the rest. It's insignificant. Folks, I want to assess to you today that at any point, for me anyway, when my fear begins to overwhelm me and I want to exclude people, when I think that somehow I'm at risk or I'm in danger, when I think that somehow I'm superior to everybody else, when there are moments and times when, you know, I think that, hey, this is it, we're going, I remind myself of this text. Jesus is here, Jesus is present, Jesus is creator over all things. And I look at this picture. The reality is this. We are a speck on a speck in the total scope of the universal reality. But what we can rest assured in is that God loved this speck so much that he became a speck himself even though he is so supreme over it all. And out of his love and out of his desire to redeem the creation, he comes back and he becomes one of us. And he says, you know what? I love you in spite of the fact that in the greatest scheme, you could seem in insignificant. But you are the most important thing to me as God, your Father, and I love you. This is a powerful thought and a powerful statement. Remember I mentioned Juneteenth, Juneteenth earlier. And the reason that Juneteenth happens is because, as I said, some folks thought that they were 
better than others and some thought that they could use others as property. What we hope to find in Jesus is a point at which we don't have to do that anymore. We can love our neighbors as ourselves, regardless of race, class, gender, that we look and see the face of Jesus in everyone that we encounter. So my challenge for you today, see Jesus in every person you encounter. Love them like Jesus has loved you. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.